Coming up in this podcast, Carbon Crackdown, Fraser Institute Ranking, WA Tech Partnerships, Lithium Green Light, Hotel Sales, Women in Business, Wacker Upgrade, and our 40 Under 40 Preview. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. Uh, Mark, uh, welcome back from Melbourne where you attended something of a tech fest and we'll get to that later. But firstly, to big news for the resources sector with the Environmental Protection Authority proposing a, a crackdown on carbon emissions in WA. Yeah, look, this came as something of a surprise to a lot of people um, who've observed the EPA as being a, a body that's generally taken what most consider a pretty balanced, pretty constructive approach to their evaluation of projects. Um, and, you know, there aren't all that many big projects in WA that get knocked back. Mm. Um, you know, most people work through the process. But they came out with a suggestion or a proposal that all projects which are large emitters, you know, more than 100,000 tonnes a year um, of CO2, would have to fully offset the impact of that. Um, so that potentially would have had a very big impact, particularly on the big uh, LNG projects um, and a number of others around the state that would process the gas. Yeah. So immediately was met with um, sort of major concern from starting from Woodside Petroleum and all the other industry groups. Um, they were most concerned about it. Interesting to see the way governments can uh, move flexibly and quickly when they need to. Because on Thursday, there was a statement from the Minister for the Environment, Stephen Dawson, uh, noting the release of the report and saying that they would consult widely before deciding what the government was going to do about it. Um, He had some reassuring words in there about taking a supportive view of investment and a long-term stable environment, etc., for investment. Uh, Come Friday morning, the Premier was on the radio declaring we are not endorsing the EPA's proposal. Right, so quite significant. So the Premier heard the concerns from industry and acted very quickly there. Mm. Interesting to put some context around this. Now, uh, CO2 emissions um, or or greenhouse gas emissions, as people refer to them, have risen very substantially in Western Australia. Uh, In fact, I read between the year 2000 and 2016, our emissions grew by 27%. And a big factor in that is the LNG projects. Yeah, it'd be a major factor. Like Gorgon and Pluto and so on, because Mm. the process of extracting uh, the gas from the offshore reservoirs, piping it to shore, and then in particular uh, liquefying the gas so that it can be shipped offshore. It's a very energy-intensive project. But the other side of it that we need to recognise is that that then becomes a relatively clean fuel. So when it goes up to China, instead of digging dirty coal out of the ground to produce their power... Especially if it's Chinese coal, because Australian coal is a bit cleaner. (laughs) But look, it's an alternative to coal. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, generally seen as a, you know, there's this you know, long-term future people think about of renewables. But in the meantime, you know, we need alternatives. Mm. And LNG is a is a clean alternative. So, we have these. We produce a lot of CO2 in Western Australia to produce the LNG, but there's an offsetting benefit when the customers get to use it. 
And, and Mark, I wonder too, like, uh, you know, I guess I haven't got into the detail of this idea, but, uh, and it's not a new idea per se, it's just, uh, it's just a bit of a, a surprise that it's come out so strongly. And I think they wanted to be carbon neutral, didn't they? That was the point of the yes. EPA, right? So, so I guess uh, there must be limited ways you can do that in Western Australia. I mean, there's only so many forests that you can grow. And I know there are businesses out there that will be rubbing their hands with glee because they are in that forest growing business and they can go and grow some, you know, forests both down south or out, you know, east of the wheat belt where, you know, you can sequester uh, carbon by growing trees. But 100,000 tonnes, I'm just... I, I'm just guessing that's quite a lot of trees, and if it's a if there's hundreds of thousands of tons per annum, we're going to run out of room. So where else do we go? Do we go and grow forests somewhere else, or are there other ways of doing this? I mean, you know, it just seems to be. Or do we just not have things go ahead? Or, and this is what the industry keeps on saying, let's address this with a national policy. Yeah. So that instead of each state coming out with their own position. And you know what was potentially a hard line, sort of regulated approach. You know, the big industry groups and their members like BHP and Rio and Woodside have all been calling for a long time for more of a, a market-based um, approach to dealing with this issue of carbon emissions mm. and getting some sort of pricing come trading mechanism yeah. that people can utilise. But that still doesn't take away the problem which you've already said or mentioned which is the fact that here we are emitting carbon uh, carbon dioxide to produce a cleaner fuel um, if if we do that out of business that doesn't save the planet if that's what's needed mm. it probably makes it worse I think that's a bit weird yeah um, look I agree with you um, I certainly wouldn't uh, endorse what's been suggested and you know I guess that at the end of the week the Premier came out pretty clearly yeah. and said uh, he doesn't support it either. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll add my little bit of... I'm, I'm pretty cautious about wanting things to be nationalised because then you get, you know, some, some, cap, you know, some, some very s- small parts of the country or, or some very distant parts of the country from our resources start telling Canberra what is required for our resources. That could be way more dangerous. Anyway, something to think about. Um, Now, Mark, this is a a neat segue, I think, actually. Earlier in the week, we had an annual uh, ranking from the Canadian group, the Fraser Institute, which gave uh, WA a positive rating, uh, and that's uh, that's in terms of our mining jurisdiction and how easy, ease of doing business here. Um, What was the news there, and and how do you uh, think the EPA will move or affect that, potentially? Yeah, well, look, this was positive news. The Fraser Institute look at, um, I think, 83 jurisdictions around the world and say, how attractive are they as a place to invest in mining? Western Australia has moved up and is second most attractive globally. So that's a very positive result, uh, beaten only by the US state of Nevada. Um, Now, WA is always ranked relatively high. We'd previously been fifth place. You know, we have dropped below that in some years. But I think this tells us that we've got a, a government that, um, and it's a, it's a bright bipartisan position here, yeah. um, whether it's a, a Liberal or Coalition government or Labor, you know, they see mining as core to the future of Western Australia and are generally supportive. So they do this thing called the Policy Perception Index. So it looks at well, environmental regulations, 
um, taxes, policy stability, um, labour availability, um, and on you know, there are some of the key measures. And Western Australia ranks very highly. Mm, and this so is sure. after, um, you know, I mean, this EPA proposal is one, if you like, you know, if that had gone ahead, that would be a major shift. Mm. But equally, you know, there was talk about a gold tax or, or a hike in gold royalties. Yeah. Uh, that Ben Wyatt advocated. The industry came out very strongly against that. So, you know, even with these little uh, blips, if you like, um, the overall assessment has still been very positive for Western Australia as a place to invest. Yeah, well, good to hear. And I guess it was also uh, better that that rating came out just before the EPA said its thing <laughs> rather than rather than afterwards. Um now, Mark, I mentioned at the start of the podcast that you were over in Melbourne during the week as a guest of Cisco at their annual Tech Fest, uh, the Cisco Live event, uh, where there was some interesting news about some WA developments that you were on hand to hear about. Yeah, look, always good to travel, get a bit of perspective on uh, how Western Australia sits in the, the greater scheme of things. Um, this Cisco event was a, a major uh, gathering, about 8,000 people came together um, in Melbourne for it, from all across the region. Um, it was really fascinating to hear some of the presentations because you know, Cisco is a company that was best known for making um, the, the, the hardware, the widgets that went into the internet, sort of uh, routers and switches and things that sort of sit behind the, the cupboard door. Yeah. Uh, but they've gone through a big change in recent years, moving a lot more into software um, you know, with the world, and so a lot of talk about um, you know, the cloud, about cyber security issues, um, about sort of wireless networks and how they're all developing, about sort of automation um, and data analytics. So they're sort of adapting their business to suit some of these big trends. And there were two bits of news that had a, or, or developments that had a strong Western Australian flavour to it. Uh, during the keynote address on the opening morning, uh, one of the senior people from, Woods, uh, from Cisco um, invited Sean Gregory from Woodside to come up on the stage uh, because they talk about Woodside as one of their great case studies of how they partner with industry. Mm. So the new Woodside building is a, uh, in the CBD here in Perth. It's a highly networked building uh, lots of Cisco equipment all through it. Um, so all sorts of, you know, from th simple things like video conferencing um, through to, you know, the really high-end sort of IT and sort of data analysis and engineering work that gets done in yeah. a business like Woodside. So Sean Gregory um, sort of spoke about the partnership that they'd had and how important it is for the changes that they're trying to make in the way that you know, a big company like Woodside operates. Yeah. Um, and then the other bit of news was from Curtin University. So Deborah Terry, the Vice-Chancellor, uh, went over for the event. Uh, Curtin and Cisco have already partnered um, for several years. Um, Cisco has things called Global Co-Innovation Centres. They've got about 20 around the world, um, and one of them's out at Curtin. Hmm. Um, and in fact, Woodside is also a partner in that one. So they've announced that they're going to spend another $7 million extending their partnership. Um, a new phrase I was not familiar with, a centre for intent-based networking. Oh, of course. So, <laughs> look, you know... <laughs> I get that straight away, Mark. What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, look, the concept really is where software 
is used to reinvent a network. So it's not just the cables, but it's all the software that attaches to it. Mm. So it's all about then using a network to automate routine tasks, about having greater analytics capabilities, about embedding security into the network. Right. So it all comes via the software rather than just the hardware. So, so, so are we saying that the network is designed and set up for a specific purpose? Is that, is that what that means? Well, in fact, I would say it, it's, it can be then used for multiple purposes because okay. of the role of, of software right. in, in how the network operates and what it can, what it can achieve. Okay. But I had a chat to Deborah Terry after the announcement and she used a fascinating phrase. I mean, she talked, so they're actually rolling out a new network at the university campus in Bentley. And Deborah said, look, the university campus is a living laboratory. Mm. Um, so I used to, which I thought was a really fascinating way about thinking how a university operates. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, if you like, at the leading edge of applying something. So a lot of research happening around this, a lot of R&D, but they're rolling it out on the campus. Yeah. And then the goal is that this will then become a, a model that other universities can look at and say, hey, why don't you go down this path? So, you know, good to see two sort of Perth organisations uh, partnering with a big global player and doing some really interesting things in a, in a fast-moving technology world. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Uh, um Fantastic, uh, fantastic event by the sounds of things. Very interesting news, and uh, and I guess you know, I guess Woodside and Curtin have both. But you know, we've got the supercomputer based out there. Although I know there's more than one university involved in that, but um, and Woodside have been you know doing stuff with NASA. So it's it's I think there's quite a lot going on in this town in that space, and uh, and I guess you know think about what drives that actually. In some ways, it's the the big money and the big. Um, analytical data needs of uh, major resources companies, mm-hmm. you know, and the need to, you know, m- run mines and LNG plants really efficiently. So, you know, I think if we go back to our previous uh, stuff we were talking about, you know, you don't want to do anything to upset that apple cart because there is a lot of spin off benefits to having these resources projects, which is beyond the royalty payments that we get. Right, have I said my piece there? (laughs) Uh, And look, uh, back on the resources front, a proposed $800 million expansion of uh, TELUS and Lithium's Greenbushes site is a big big step closer after TELUS and Global Advanced Metals resolved a legal dispute over the plan. So just what's the detail there, Mark? So uh, TELUS and Lithium is the big player in what, we've spoken about many times as a fast-growing industry. Yep. So they've got their mine down at Greenbushes, down in the southwest, and uh, spending about $800 million expanding the capacity there. Yeah. Now, Talison's um, a joint venture. A joint venture. So the two owners of Talison, uh, the current owners, one of them is Tianqi Lithium, yep. the Chinese group. They've just spent you know, a billion-odd dollars down at Quinana. Yep building their processing lithium processing plant. Yep. The other joint venture partner is a US company, Albemarle. They're the ones who've recently pressed the button to build a similar lithium plant down at Kimmerton, yep. near Bunbury. So you know, the ore comes out of the mine at Greenbushes, gets turned into a concentrate, that gets fed down to the processing plants at, on the coast, mm-hmm. where they produce a lithium hydroxide, 
Yep. Which then sort of goes off to China and elsewhere to go into the batteries. Yep. To go into the electric cars. Um, this to save all those carbon emissions. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, this one, there was this sort of, you know, it was an unexpected uh, issue that, that came up because the Greenbush's green mine, as well as producing lithium, produces another relatively obscure product called tantalum. Yep. Um, and In fact, I would say tantalum was its product until lithium became the important well, one. Well, that's right. It's flipped around. <laughs> Uh, some great history here, briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Both the Greenbushes mine and the Wadjana mine up in the Pilbara yep. used to be owned by a company called Sons of Gualia. Oh, there you go. So that of was course. A, of course. They were one of the big mining companies in WA. Yeah. Um, owned and led by the Layla brothers. And um, Wadjana and Greenbushes were both tantalum mines at that stage. That was the principal yep. product. That's right, yep. and, and lithium was the byproduct. Yeah, um, but they've you know they've waxed and waned over the years depending on yep. commodity prices and market conditions. Um, after and, and can of, I, am I right in saying Greenbushes was a tin mine prior to that, or you know? That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Look, both of those mine sites have had uh, multiple products have come out of them over the years, depending on what the market is called for. Yep. Um, and stuff that gets put in the waste pile. One decade can become a valuable product in the next decade. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, after Sons of Gualia went bust, the two mines were bought by a company backed by resource capital funds. Yep. So the big private equity group that's sort of jointly led out of Perth by James McClements and his team. Then it got split into two companies. So one of them was a lithium company. The other one, Global Advanced Metals, was the Tantalum company. Um, but yeah, the issue was that this expansion of the lithium mine, uh, GAM was concerned that they wouldn't have access to their tantalum deposits and that their long-term interests were going to be compromised by this. Um, and look, as often occurs in these things, they've had lawyers working on this for months, many court hearings, um, but then when it comes to the crunch, yep. they negotiate a settlement, yeah. um, as often is the way. Um, including a new tantalum recovery circuit down there at Greenbushes. So a good outcome. So, you know, some great history there, but a good outcome that the, the investment will proceed. And just to be uh, on the side of that, Wadjana has changed hands. So resource capital funds sold out of that? Well, you're right. I mean, so Mineral Resources Limited yep. is now developing Wadjana. You know, they originally bought, you know, another site with multiple commodities... They bought it when Atlas Iron was digging iron ore out of the ground. Yeah. But Mineral Resources spotted the lithium opportunity. But same story. There's also tantalum as a byproduct up there. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, and and, and I think everyone's sort of touting Mineral Resources is going to do pretty well out of that purchase. Um, and Mark, uh, bringing us back to Perth, and our Coles has sold the management rights to its Spirit Hotels banner. Uh, including four hotels in Perth. Got much on that one? Yeah, look, um, another change of ownership. Um, it's interesting, you go down the local pub and um, rather than the, the bloke behind the bar being the owner, it's uh, more often than not a large corporate entity. Yeah. So these are the Vic Park Hotel, the Civic, uh, the Bentley and the Leopold Hotel. Uh, 
been through multiple changes of ownership over the years. And look, Coles has got to a view where they're saying, look, this is not core business for us. Mm. Um, so in fact, there's 87 pubs around the country are going into a new entity um, jointly owned by KKR, ah, another okay. big private equity group. Gotcha. So all these sort of uh, you know assets and businesses, always interesting to see who sits behind them now. But Coles is hanging on to the... Uh it's, it's, a joint, it's a joint venture structure for the pubs. Right. Um, the Coles will continue to, yeah, they'll continue operating um, some of their liquor stores. And they'll have some ownership but not management. Is that how it works or, or um, they've sold out completely? Of the, the hotels? Mm. Um, look, as I say, it's a joint venture, 50-50. Right, okay. So, yeah, but, I mean, it gets it off, if you like, out of their core business. Gotcha. And it, it reminded me, because some of the pubs there, just remind me, which, which pubs were they, Mark? In so uh, the Victoria Park Hotel, yeah. uh, the Civic up in Inglewood, the Bentley, um, and uh, the Leopold Hotel in Bicton. Yeah, right, there so, you go. I used to I did a few shifts at the Leopold Hotel many moons ago when uh, I was uh, working for some guys who owned some liquor stores, and they owned the Leopold as well. But a great little, great little place. Funnily enough, I was looking at it... Um, this deal that Coles has done is pretty similar to what Woolies did a few years ago. They had somehow, and I can't remember the, the background, they had acquired the ALH group, which owned a bunch of pubs in WA. Uh, and you'd remember quite a few, you know, the Brass Monkey and the Queens and things like that. They were quite well-known ones. And, uh, and from recollection, Woolies sold out of those to private equity, um, or a number of those pubs to private equity a few years ago, so looks like Coles has, you know, finally followed in their mm. footsteps. Um, and a little bit of change there, right? So we've got Coles is now its own beast. It's not owned by West Farmers anymore. Uh, you know, got some very concentrated management. Maybe they're tinkering at the edges a bit. Um, now, Mark, ignoring the irony of having two blokes talk about International Women's Day, uh, Business News has done a special feature to mark the week. That's right. Um, so look, there's a great photo essay that uh, is featured in our um, latest edition. Um, so we've gone around and, and spoken to and featured women from a wide range of professions. And I think that's, sort of, that's quite telling. Um, so whether it's um, you know, Michelle Amara, one of our former 40 under 40 winners, is a uh, very successful uh, medical practitioner and surgeon, um, and others in the legal profession, in um, in engineering, um, in the police service, um, and you know, a conductor of an orchestra. Um, so just sort of illustrating, I suppose, the diversity of options. And look, I guess it comes along at a time when we've had a lot of discussion about um, advancing or helping women get ahead faster, yep. whether it's in uh, executive roles or professions or in board roles. And, uh, you know, there's that goal about having 30% of women on the boards of top ASX companies, or sorry, 30% of directors being women. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of progress across um, many different fields. Um, and I guess a, a general recognition across the business community um, about treating women um, with more respect and treating them on their merits and allowing them to get ahead um, and I guess mm. you know, being and providing the environment for them to you know uh, making it you know that there's different circumstances and, and you can't make it you can't just expect you know the same thing to work for both men and women mm. 
So, uh, I was interested too, Mark. Uh, there was some news there from Austal. They're they're trying to recruit. Gee, I can't remember. Now. It was a forty-five. I think they're trying to recruit forty-five female uh, um, workers in, in their factory. You know, manufacturing boats. And I think they said they're halfway there or nearly halfway there, and make a big push to diversify their workforce. You know, mm. which you know would have would have been, I imagine, exclusively male or almost exclusively male today. And out of part as part of a broader um, effort, you know. That, Good news from Austal that I think it's about 230 positions they're looking to fill. Well, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I don't want to ignore the big news there. <laughs> <laughs> I just think they're getting in ahead. I think they're seeing a uh, skill shortage coming up and trying to lock in a bit of staff before it gets hard. Um, now, Mark, uh, during the week, the WACA outlined a $75 million redevelopment plan. What do we know about that? Look, this is the... Uh, latest iteration in the WACA's efforts to find a sustainable long-term future for itself uh, with the development of what is now Optus Stadium, uh, taking the the really big uh, cricket matches um, for the, you know, for the long-term future. Um, the WACA previously had plans for a redevelopment that I recall was a lot more expensive than their latest uh, suggestion um, and that sort of got knocked down pretty quickly um, as being unviable. So they've come back with an idea that um, they'll have a smaller capacity, um, still a substantial investment, as you say, $75-odd million, um, but it's seen as a, a venue that will complement um, rather than compete with Optus Stadium. Yeah. They won't be uh, chasing the big blockbuster games. Um, I know a lot of cricket fans have you know, fond memories of the Wacker and enjoy sitting on the grass. You won't be able to do that anymore um, for the big games. You'll have to go and sit in the seats at Optus Stadium. Um, but look, I think it's a, a sensible proposal uh, that reflects the way the, uh, the landscape has changed. Mm. Oh, well, good luck to them. I, I know that they haven't got any big uh, funding commitments yet, so we'll see how they go. Um, now, Mark, on Wednesday is one of the biggest nights on the Perth Business Calendar, the 40 Under 40 Awards. Uh, now, you chaired the judging this year. What can you tell us about it without giving away any secrets? <laughs> yeah, look, it was a, um, a really interesting exercise. Uh, we had about 100 applications for the, uh, um, or nominations for the 40 positions. Uh, so, you know, always challenging to uh, do the judging. I love the diversity amongst all the nominations. Uh, people come from all walks of life, um, all different professions. And, you know, you can be really surprised uh, by some of the interesting things that people are doing um, outside the mainstream of traditional career paths. Um, and that's one of the things that we look for, people that are having a go, um, taking some risks, being entrepreneurial. Mm. Um, that's what we like to see. And uh, we've been doing this for, what, 17 years now? And uh, every year, we get um, a, a very rich collection of uh, nominations. And, uh, you know, you look at some of the people that have won it. You know, Rally Finlayson was first amongst equals last year out of the 40 winners. Um, Yana Cedar from Gumala Aboriginal Corporation the year before that. Uh, I've had property people like Paul Blackburn, uh, Angus Turner, a very entrepreneurial doctor at the Lion's Eye Institute. Um, so, you know, it's wonderful to look back at the collection of winners yeah. and looking forward to Wednesday night and announcing the latest batch of 
40 winners. Absolutely. And I, I always like to throw in a line for uh, Sue Daubney, one of my favourite winners, uh, Bannister Downs Dairy. Very successful story, that one. Uh, well, thanks, Mark. Looking forward to it. And uh, we'll obviously be telling everyone a bit more next week. Uh, Business News and BDO are set to launch our latest remuneration report, a detailed look at the pay of thousands of managers and directors across hundreds of companies. Uh, The information is sliced and diced in many ways to make it an invaluable tool for ASX company boards, investors and management, as well as a guide for private businesses that want to compare their own remuneration structures. The report launch will take place on Thursday and a sample will be available for download from our site. Just look for the remuneration reports link from the publications drop-down on our homepage. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.